sometimes things don't end well. Like the 1986 John Hughes movie, Pretty in Pink. It starts off and it has all of the marks of a typical 80s movie, a great soundtrack, romance, dancing, neon clothes, a lot of Aquanet hairspray, and of course, Molly Ringwald. I mean, any 80s movie with Molly Ringwald is gold. You can't go wrong with Molly Ringwald. In my opinion, though, Pretty in Pink is one of the best 80s movies, but also one of the best 80s movies with one of the best soundtracks. The, the title track, Pretty in Pink, by the Psychedelic Furs is classic if you're an 80s kid. And the song by Echo and the Bunnymen, Bring On the Dancing Horses, has this haunting lyric which says, Bring on the new Messiah wherever he may roam. And that's actually was, that was the prayer of the nation of Israel after the Davidic kingdom fell, which we'll find out about in Psalm 132. They were singing, singing, bring on the new Messiah. Everything about this movie, Pretty in Pink, is perfect, except the ending. If you're familiar with it, you know why. Pretty in Pink does not end the way that you expect it to. It has a terrible ending that goes against every 80s romance movie because the guy gets the girl in the end, but it's not the guy that you want to get the girl. You think the best friend in the movie, whose name is Ducky, you think he will end up with Molly Ringwald, and you want him to end up with her at the end of the movie, but he doesn't. Who gets the girl? It's the shallow rich guy who does. Such a tragic ending. And I know because I watched it again at 3.15 this morning. I woke up and couldn't sleep and I thought, you know, I'm going to be talking about it. I'll just watch it again. So had that pain at the very end again at about 5.05, I think it was. It's the shallow rich guy that gets the girl in the end. Such a tragic ending. Everything about the movie is perfect except for the last two minutes. The guy that you want to get the girl doesn't. Poor Ducky. Sometimes things don't end well. And that's sort of what's happening in Psalm 132. There's this celebration about the Davidic kingdom that will last forever. And yet we know that David's kingdom did not last forever. It ended, at least the physical one, in Israel. And it did not end well. But by the time you get to the end of Psalm 132, you're left with some hope that another Davidic king was on his way. So Psalm 132 ends, and it leaves you with hope that the right guy will get the girl in the end. The last two verses of Psalm 132 don't let us down. Jesus will get the girl, his bride. The eternal plan of God for his son Jesus was this. Slay the dragon and get the girl. And here's why. Because Jesus simply cannot get close enough to his people. Like Ducky in Pretty in Pink, he just wanted to be with Andy, played by Molly Ringwald. He just wanted to be with her, to always be around her. And that's how Jesus is toward his people. And in Psalm 132, we will see David's desire to be near Yahweh. But even more than that, we will see Yahweh's desire to be near his people. Jesus wanted to be with his people so bad that he came up with a way that would satisfy his justice against man's sin and yet still allow sinners to get close to him. 
Sinners could draw near to Yahweh because he made a way possible. And it all revolved around sacrifice. Psalm 132 is telling us that Jesus can't get close enough to his people. And that's good news for people like us. Now, the average length of the Ascent Psalms that we've been going through in this series is just under seven verses. So Psalm 132 comes along and provides the most glaring exception with 18 verses. So Psalm 132 is nearly twice as long as all of the other Ascent Psalms. And then that should make us wonder why. Why is this song so long? The ancient Israelites who would be singing these psalms as they traveled to Jerusalem to worship during the three yearly festivals, surely they would have noticed it because all of the other songs are short. But then you get this really long one. It's like going from singing Little Deuce Coop by the Beach Boys, which is only a minute and 41 seconds long. Did you know that? That's how great of a song it is. You don't even realize it's over. It's like going from singing Little Deuce Coop, which comes in at a minute and 41 seconds, to singing Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin, which is over eight minutes long. So why is Psalm 132 so long, and why is it significant? We'll answer those questions today. So, Psalm 132, beginning at verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Remember, O Yahweh, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to Yahweh and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for Yahweh, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now this is a prayer by these worshipers that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, would remember all that David did for him. And not just merely remember, because the Hebrew word for remember, the Hebrew word zakar, doesn't just mean remember. It means to remember and then act. So they're praying that the Lord would remember what David did and then act and bless and reward him. They're asking the Lord to fulfill his promises to David. And this is helpful for us as it relates to our prayers. Yahweh's promises are driving their prayers, shaping them to the content of their prayers. They're taking Yahweh's promises to the bank, if you will. They know that the Lord promised David, and they're just asking the Lord to go all Nike on their prayers and just do it. And you can do that too, Christian. You can find a promise in God's word. You can go to him and you can say, please do this, Lord. Just do it. Just do it. That's what's happening in Psalm 132. They're asking the Lord to remember and act and bless David for what he did. But what did David do? What do they want Yahweh to remember? Well, here's what David did. David hired a bunch of movers, and he helped move Yahweh from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. David moved the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. David had determined not to get any rest or sleep or take any naps in the first few verses, he says there, until the Ark of the Covenant was brought back into the center of the lives of those in Israel. And so David sent word throughout all of Israel that they were bringing the Ark out of the dusty storage building that had been sitting in. Word went out over all of Israel, Yahweh's moving. And that's what verses 6 and 7 tell us. Look at verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Ja'ar. 
Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. What are verses 6 and 7 saying? And what is the it that this song is referring to here? It's the Ark of the Covenant. In 1 Chronicles 13, which was our scripture reading this morning, David sent word about all of Israel to gather all the priests so that they could carry the ark to Jerusalem. And that's what verses 6 and 7 are talking about. David got on social media, if you will, and he put the word out to the priests that they should come and help carry the ark back home. Now, remember what the ark was and what it signified. One, it signified that Yahweh was all-powerful. That's why it's called the ark of his might here. The ark of his might. When this thing went into battle with the Israelites, things happened. And we know the story in the Old Testament. And when people touched it, they died. It's the ark of his might. So the ark pointed out the fact that Yahweh was all-powerful and he ruled the universe The ark was his footstool, Scripture says. But it was also the symbol of God's presence among his people. Now, of course, every Israelite knew that Yahweh was omnipresent, that he was everywhere. But this little tiny wooden box, which was overlaid with gold, was very special. I mean, it's small. It's only three and three quarters feet long and two and a quarter feet wide and high. So it was not really big and You know, you see it and you're like, whoa, what is this massive thing like a tank coming at me? It's this tiny little box, wooden box, covered over with gold. By the way, did you know the full name of the ark is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts enthroned on the cherubim? That's its full name. We just call it the ark, though. And the ark contained a copy of the Ten Commandments and the jars full of manna. And later the staff of Aaron's that budded. But somewhere along the way, the manna and Aaron's staff were lost because they're not mentioned as being in the ark when Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 9. But the ark also had a lid with these weird winged lion creatures on top. But that's not what made it special either. What made it so special was that the ark emphasized mercy and forgiveness. So David knew That God was everywhere and not just limited to the ark's presence. And David knew that no human being could escape his presence. But David also knew what the ark symbolized was the place that we often try to hide from God. His mercy and his forgiveness. And isn't that what we often do? We run from God. We hide from God when we sin. We think that if we can just get some distance between us and our sin, then he'll accept me. We think if, we, if I can wait a few hours before I go and ask him for forgiveness, or if I can wait a few days after I've really blown it, then I can come into his presence. And so we often try to hide from this very special presence, and we often try to hide from this invitation from God to just barge into his presence after we have sinned. Listen, Grace, Jesus wants and expects you to come to him dirty. Hello? You're a sinner, in case you didn't know that. Steve Brown said, it's easier to hug a dirty kid than a stiff kid. Stiffness is the worst sin. And we thought that dirt was the problem. Jesus wants you to come dirty. What he doesn't want is a stiff self-righteous person and that's what the pharisees were 
And that's why Jesus told them in Matthew 9, 13, for I came not to call the righteous, meaning you guys, but sinners. The problem is that we think we're okay without God. And that's why the ark was hidden in a closet for 20 years. In David's day, it was because the nation of Israel thought that they were doing just fine without it. But the problem is that we think we're okay without God. And sometimes that's what keeps us away from Jesus. Nate Larkin said, What keeps most of us from God is not the sin we know we have, but the righteousness we think we have. For some of us, we need to be cleansed from our supposed righteousness. And that's a shell shock for some. David knew that the ark was the special presence of God, a symbol of his great love for sinners, a symbol of his heart. So the ark of the covenant was an invitation, a summons from a holy God to dirty sinners that they were welcome. They were welcome in his presence. The ark was where the great sacrifice for sins took place each year on the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, and they would sprinkle blood on the altar for the sins of the nation. And this is why David wants to get the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. But where was the ark hiding for those 20 years? If you remember your Old Testament, at one point in Israel's history, the ark had been captured by the Philistines. And they put the ark in their temple, in the temple of Dagon, and then what happened? The statue of Dagon fell and broke into pieces on the ground because the ark, because the presence of Yahweh was there. And so the Philistines wisely loaded up the ark on a wagon and sent it back to Israel, and it sat for 20 years in the home of a man named Abinadab. Now, why would God do this? Why would Yahweh first allow the Philistines to steal the ark and then allow it to sit for 20 years in a closet? Does that contradict the big idea of our sermon that Jesus simply cannot get close enough to his people? If God can't get close enough to his people, why was the ark stolen in the first place? And then why did it sit in some guy's closet for 20 years? If Jesus cannot get too close to his people, why was he collecting dust, if you will, for 20 years? Here's why. Because the Israelites lost sight of the big picture. They thought that they could do life without Yahweh. And so Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, allowed these things to transpire. And I think Ralph Davis, Old Testament commentator, explains what happened well. He says, the text forces two important implications upon us. Yahweh will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. And Yahweh will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. Let me read that again. The text forces two important implications upon us. Yahweh will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. And Yahweh will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. Sometimes God will let you do what you do. And that's sobering grace. God suffered public humiliation and shame in the eyes of the Philistines because he did not want the Israelites to carry on a false relationship with him. And he allowed them to be disappointed with him 
in order to wake them up. Very sobering. It doesn't contradict God's heart to be with his people. Just like the boy Ducky in the movie Pretty in Pink. He wanted to be with Andy, Molly Ringwald. Likewise, God wants to be with us. But he wants our hearts. Ducky wanted Andy's heart. And Jesus wants our hearts. And he'll let us be disappointed with him if it will wake us up from our spiritual slumber. And that's sobering. Let me ask you this morning. Are you disappointed with God today? Something happening in your life and you're disappointed with God? Maybe he's trying to get your attention. Listen, Jesus will suffer shame rather than allow you to carry on a false relationship with him. And Jesus will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. So for about 20 years, the Ark of the Covenant was just out there somewhere in Israel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, it says that the nation of Israel lamented after the Lord. They missed his presence. They missed his reassurance for those 20 years. But they didn't seem to do anything about it. Because David says in 1 Chronicles 13 that the nation of Israel did not seek the Ark. Literally, in Hebrew, it's him. Our English translators translate it as the ark, but they did not seek him. They did not seek God. They did not seek Yahweh during the days of Saul, even though they lamented after the Lord. They still didn't seek him. So the ark was out there collecting dust until David determined to bring it home to Jerusalem. And David's passion in Psalm 132 was to get the ark back where it belonged, back into the center of the people's lives. They seem to have forgotten this special presence of Yahweh, symbolized by the ark. And so for about 20 years, it was sitting in someone's basement collecting dust. We have to get to know you, Yahweh, after 20 years, because we forgot what you're like. That's what it was like for them. Now, lest we throw them under the bus for losing the ark and not knowing that it was sitting in some pawn shop in the backwoods of Israel... We do the same thing, if we're honest. Sometimes disciples in churches just slowly drift from the gospel, and they don't even know it. And they wake up 20 years later, and they're like, where's Jesus? Where did God go? Did somebody put him in storage? And it can happen in our individual lives as well. We just slowly drift from Jesus, and we wake up one day, and we have drifted 20 miles out to sea. And that's why we need to hear the gospel Every Sunday in this pulpit. Carl Truman says, The task of the preacher, therefore, is to take the Bible and do two things in every sermon. Destroy self-righteousness and point hearers toward the alien external righteousness of Christ. That's what we need every week, Grace. That's what I need. We need to hear over and over and over again about God's special love for sinners who have no righteousness on their own. We need to hear about his heart for his people, the church. We need to hear again and again about this special place where mercy is offered to the unrighteous, to sinners, namely at the cross. Now why? Because the bent of our heart is, please, please, please let me get what I want. That's sin. We want what we want and we want it now. That's the bent of our heart. 
And now let me give you proof that your heart needs to hear the gospel every week. What are the songs that we sing here that really pull on the heartstrings? I mean, the ones, there are some that, if we'll all admit, you know, we're thinking about mowing the lawn after a church. You know, you guys do that, right? Come on, I just said there's no righteousness from anyone. You don't want to be self-righteous right now. We all drift, but there are some songs that we sing that, man, like a tractor beam just sucks our hearts in, and we're there, and we're singing it with everything that we got. What are those songs? The ones that we feel deep down in our souls. In my experience, it's the songs that talk about God's great love for us as demonstrated on the cross. The songs that highlight his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. Those are the songs I think that we really sing. Songs like How He Loves, which we're going to sing at the end of this sermon. And I didn't even know that when I was doing the notes. And the song that we just sang, The Power of the Cross. And songs like It Is Well and Amazing Grace. Why do these songs resonate in our hearts and with our hearts more than others? Because it's all gospel. We love those songs because they assure us that Jesus does love us and we are forgiven. That's why we go round, round, round again with these songs because it's all gospel. And that's why we need to hear the good news preached here every week because one, we forget it every week. Two, We need it every week. And three, we love it every week. I don't know about you, but I love to be told that I'm forgiven. That never gets old to me. I love to listen to sermons and songs that remind me of who I am in Christ, that I am justified by faith, that I am in union with Christ, that I am clean. That never gets old to me, ever. And I need it often because I forget it often. And I have a hunch that many of you are just like me. I love Jesus' words in 15.3. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Isn't that good news? Just let that land on you this morning. We forget John 15.3 that we are clean. And that's why Martin Luther said this, every week I preach justification by faith to my people because every week they forget it. We need the gospel coming forth from this pulpit every week, just like David and company did. David wanted to get the Ark of the Covenant back because he wanted to be reminded of the gospel. He wanted to be reminded that God loves him. He wanted to be reminded that he was forgiven. The nation of Israel and David forgot the gospel Forgot that they were clean because the ark was gone for 20 years. Now, they knew God's holiness. They knew that because 1 Samuel 6.20, right before they put the ark in storage, this is what they say. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? No one can stand before him. So let's hide this thing. Let's get it out of here. You get close enough to it, you die. God is holy. They understood God's holiness. And there are Christians who understand God's holiness But man, they're sticking the muds. And they don't know how to have fun. And they don't understand grace. And they don't dance. And they don't laugh. And then there are some Christians who understand God's grace. And they love it. And they lap it up like a thirsty dog. But they don't care about obedience. And so I think at any moment of our lives, we can be this way where all we do is focus on God's holiness and we forget about how merciful and gracious he is or we focus on how merciful and gracious he is and then we think, I can live any way I want to. 
That's trifling with God. Some of us today need to be reminded about God's holiness and not trifle with Him. And some of us need to be reminded today of God's grace and not think wrongly of Him and maybe laugh. We all need the gospel every day. Tim Keller said, Because the gospel is endlessly rich, it can handle the burden of being the one main thing of a church. The gospel can be the main thing in a church. It can handle the weight of that. We don't need lasers and lights during worship or fog machines like some churches. We just need songs about Jesus. We don't need all the glitz and the glamour. We just need the gospel. And when you, you get news that you don't want to hear, news of cancer or some disease or a phone call that rocks your world and tells you that a loved one has died, what do you need in that moment? You need good news. You need the gospel. You need to hear about how great Jesus is. Trust me, when you get cancer, sermons that give you seven tips to being a better husband will not help you. When you land in the hospital and you're close to death, sermons that give you tips and to-do lists will not help you. What are you going to do? Call the worship team and have them set up a fog machine and lasers and lead you in worship in the hospital room? No, you need Jesus. You need a church community, a church family that gathers around you and tells you over and over and over again what they have heard about Jesus week in and week out. The gospel, that you're forgiven, that Jesus loves you, that you will be resurrected one day, that God is sovereign And that he is working this out for your good and his glory. When you end up in the hospital room, you need someone who knows their Bible and can tell you about the triune God. What you don't need to be told in that moment in the hospital room are words like this. I'm sorry, Helen. The worship team could not get here. And the fog machine and lasers aren't working right now. But I have my sermon notes from last week, and I can give you four steps to a healthy outlook on life. That's not going to help you. That makes me want to vomit. But that's why I love this church. I'm going to miss y'all while I'm on sabbatical. My last sermon is today, and I'll be on sabbatical for three months and won't be gone. I'm going to miss Grace because I think we're the best church in town. I really do. If I didn't believe that, I should be fired. I love grace. I love grace because the DNA here now after five years, I think is pure gospel. If you cut us now, I think we bleed gospel. Do we have areas where we can grow and improve? Absolutely. Of course we do. Email the church because I'm going to be on sabbatical. Let the other pastors know how we need to change. And they can change it and I can come back and everything's good. Every church needs help. Every person, every marriage, every relationship, we can all improve in several areas in our lives. And we can in this church. But man, do we get the gospel here? I love that about grace. But for David and company, it had been 20 years, and they seemed to have forgotten about the ark. There was no yearly sacrifice for their sins on the Day of Atonement because the ark was MIA. And they didn't even notice, it seems. It just goes to show that we are so sinful that we can carry on with life. We can carry on with church life without even bringing Jesus into the picture. That's sad. We can do church without even mentioning Jesus. Seems impossible, but Psalm 132 is telling you that that can happen. And all you have to do is visit a few churches 
or their websites or listen to their sermons and you might not even find a trace of Jesus. What a scary place to be. God have mercy on us all. Bring revival to your church, Jesus. And revival is what these Israelites were praying for in Psalm 132. Look at verse 8. Arise, O Yahweh, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Now, they're praying that the ark would make it to Jerusalem, where Yahweh could be where he wanted to be, which was near his people. Please understand that restoring the ark to Jerusalem was not restoring a religious icon, but restoring Yahweh's presence among his people. The the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament was set up so that sinners could draw near to God, so that priests could minister God's grace to his people, so that the people would rejoice and be glad and be satisfied. And somewhere along the way, The church has messed this up. We think Christianity is primarily about an angry, cranky God who can't stand how disobedient his children are, so he's always in a bad mood. And because he's always cranky and irritated with us, we're supposed to walk around on pins and needles and be miserable all the time and eat liver and drink prune juice for fun. We think that Christians are supposed to be the most miserable people on the planet. And yet the biblical story is night and day different from that. The Ark of the Covenant was God telling his people, I can't get close enough to you. I want to be near you. I want you to be full of joy in my presence. The Ark of the Covenant is proof of that. And so was the tabernacle, the entire tabernacle. So was the temple. And so was the incarnation of Jesus. When Jesus was born, it was a declaration to sinners what the ark had been screaming for years. I can't get close enough to you. I want to be near you. I want you to be full of joy in my presence. I can't get close enough to you. That's what Jesus says to you today, Christian. Doesn't that make you want to pray? Doesn't that make you want to read the Bible? Jesus says, I can't get close enough to you. I just want to be with you. Doesn't it make you want to? It does me. Of course, these worshipers in Psalm 132 know that they are sinners. They know that their commitment stinks. They know that David's commitment stinks. I mean, they're highlighting David's passion and commitment to move the ark in these verses, yes. But they know that our commitment stinks and that David's commitment stinks. After all, the ark was in a closet collecting dust for 20 years. So much for religious enthusiasm and commitment, right? So much for their commitment to Yahweh. Listen, if you get this, then the Bible will make a lot more sense. It's not our commitment to God that gets the emphasis in Scripture. It's God's commitment to His people and His promises that does. That's what Psalm 132 is telling us. The reality is that the Bible is one big story of how fickle we are and how faithful God is. And if you can swallow that truth, then the Bible becomes a book that you want to read because you keep hearing over and over and over again just how good Jesus is. Wouldn't it be good if we really believed that Jesus is as good as he says he is? 
And these worshipers in Psalm 132 know that the Lord is good because they pray that he would not turn away from the face of David, Yahweh's anointed. Now, what's interesting here is that the word for anointed in verse 10 is Messiah in Hebrew. Mashiach. It means anointed one. And David was the anointed king, the anointed one of Israel. But we see now that even though David did fail, God did, in fact, keep his promise to David because Jesus, the real Messiah, the real Davidic king, came many years later. Look at verse 11. Yahweh swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the, the Lord Yahweh has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Now we know from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that Yahweh made a promise to David that he would always have a son on the throne. But he said, but if you leave, if you disobey, there's discipline. We also know the rest of the Bible and how from Solomon onward, the Davidic kings failed miserably. They went after other gods. They went and left of center and went after other gods. Yes, there were a few good ones, but mostly they all walked away from the Lord until the nation eventually split into two, Israel and Judah, and then finally they were sent into exile in Babylon. But the good news of the gospel is that this sad, sad tale of David and Solomon and all the other kings, it leads us to King Jesus, the Davidic king par excellence, whom all of these scriptures were pointing to and anticipating. It's like the song, Bring on the Dancing Horses by Echo and the Bunny Men from the Pretty in Pink soundtrack. I love this song. The words, first I'm going to make it, then I'm going to break it till it falls apart. It's like the Davidic kingdom. God says, I'm going to make it. Then I'm going to break it because you're a disobedience till it falls apart. Hating all the faking and shaking while I'm breaking your brittle heart. Of course, Yahweh hated all of their hypocrisy, how fake they were, saying, we worship Yahweh and chasing after other gods and shaking while he's breaking their brittle heart. It got dark for a while in Israel. They went into captivity. They went into exile. And it seemed like for a season that Yahweh's promises to David had expired. But listen, Grace, with God, it never gets too dark. It's never too dark for Yahweh. In fact, it's in the dark that his grace and mercy shine the most. It's in the middle of the darkness of our rebellion and sin that his promises shine the brightest. And so Psalm 132 is this massive, sturdy reminder that no matter how dark and no matter how hopeless it seems, God's plans and God's promises will never fail. And King Jesus is all the proof you need. No matter how dark and hopeless it seems, God's plans and God's promises will never fail for his people. Why? 
Because Jesus simply cannot get close enough to his people. And we see this in verse 13. The Hebrew word for desire is this enthusiastic fervor that Yahweh has. This overwhelming desire to be with and to bless his people. His desire is for his people. His desire was like Ducky's desire to be with Andy. It's not that Yahweh has a desire for Zion in particular. Like it's hot real estate and he knows it. It's that Yahweh has this strong desire to be with his people as they worship him in Jerusalem. It's not that the city holds his heart. It's his people, the church, the redeemed who have his heart. His desire is for his elect. Now let me ask you, is that how you think of him? Or do you see him as cranky? Yahweh has this enthusiastic fervor to be with his people. He longs to bless us. He longs to be good to us. Jesus is not a cosmic curmudgeon. He wants to be with us and bless our socks off. Do you believe it today? It'll change how you read the Bible if you do. So Psalm 132 is really a promise of the coming Redeemer that was promised back in Genesis 3, the Messiah, the real King David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 132 is echoing the promise that the great snake crusher, the great dragon slayer was coming for his bride. Psalm 132 is really a cry after the fact of Israel's desire for the Messiah, the anointed one, to come. Psalm 132 became... A cry, like that song from Pretty in the Pink, bring on the new Messiah wherever he may roam. See, we're all like David, and we just want to know that we can be forgiven. We just want to know that we are clean. That's why the ark was dusted off and brought back. David, I just want to know I'm forgiven. I just want to know for certain that I'm clean. We're all like that. We want to know deep down inside that shame and guilt and sin do not have the last word. And shame and guilt and sin do not have the last word because of the last words of Psalm 132. Look at verses 17 and 18. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. God gets the last word in Psalm 132, not the failures of Israel. God promises to raise up a horn, which is a symbol of conquering strength. He promises to raise up his anointed, the Messiah, God's enemies will be conquered. His throne will endure forever. In all of those words and phrases, horn, the mighty ark, anointed, enemies, throne, Davidic king, ark of his might, they're all pictures of the conquering Messiah, of the great dragon slayer Jesus who would come and cut the head off of that lying snake. And the good news of the gospel is that we will never be clothed with shame. Sin and guilt and shame will not have the last words in our lives. They will for the unbeliever. The unbeliever will be clothed with shame forever. Think about that. How awful that will be. Unbelievers will wear shame and guilt like a garment for eternity. Haven't you seen how children are when they're ashamed? 
They're devastated. It's awful. It's not natural to them. They want to hide. They curl up in a ball. They get under a blanket. They hide in the corner. I saw it with one of our kids this week. They were paralyzed. And we just scooped her up and we hugged her and we told her there's no shame. Her sins are forgiven. That she was clean. That she was free. So how awful it will be to bear shame for eternity. But for those of us in union with Christ, we will be clothed in his righteousness forever. Jesus will clothe us, his bride, and he will say to the Father, pretty in pink. Isn't she pretty in pink? I don't know if we're going to wear pink. I want to wear black, but since we're collectively the bride of Christ, I'm going to give up my preference and we can wear pink (laughs) at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will be clothed in his righteousness forever. We will shout for joy forever. We will rest forever like these verses promise. We will be satisfied forever, provided for forever, clothed with salvation forever. Why? Because King Jesus will be wearing a crown that will shine forth his glory and we will bask in that warm light forever. That's proof that Jesus simply cannot get close enough to his people. Let me ask you, at the end of the book of Exodus, where is God's tent? It's right smack dab in the middle of his people. It was a testimony to his deep desire to be with his people. His tent with the ark was right in the middle of Israel. It was a testimony to his deep desire to be with his people. Where is God at the end of Psalm 132? making a promise that he would raise up his son, the Messiah, and crown him with a crown that will shine forever on his people. And what does Jesus say in the gospel? He says, I'm coming back to get you so that you can what? Be with me forever. If he doesn't want to be with us, he's not coming back to get us, right? Who goes to get someone they don't want to be with? Jesus says, I'm coming back to get you because I want to be with you forever. And how does the Bible end? Jesus gives us another promise. Surely I am coming soon. He just simply cannot get close enough to us. The story ends well, Grace. No matter how dark it seems right now, this story ends well. The guy gets the girl in the end, and they will live happily ever after. Jesus comes to kill the dragon and get the girl, his bride, the church. And then everything sad will come untrue. So you, today, are cordially invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will celebrate the king's love for his bride and how he slayed the dragon while we party like we've never partied before. That's my one-sentence summary of the Bible right there. You are cordially invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will celebrate the king's love for his bride and how he slayed the dragon while we party like we've never partied before. Let's close with a quote by Jack Miller. To be near God and to have God near us is the whole purpose of human life. But without repentance, there can be no face-to-face fellowship with the Father. The Lord cannot resist the broken heart that has experienced true repentance. He will not, he cannot stay away from repentant sinners. This Holy Father sees humanity in all its nastiness and yet is given to strange, tender excesses. 
His love explodes into joyous action whenever a convicted sinner turns toward home. Will you come home today? Jesus will have you back. Jesus wants you back. He'll have you come home and rest in his arms. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how loving you are, how merciful and gracious. For many of us, Father, we struggle to believe that. And we know that you're holy and set apart. And so we live surrounded by these two truths, Father. You are holy and you're merciful and good. And you made a way for us to draw near through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. I pray that the Holy Spirit this morning would cause us to believe this so that we laugh more, dance more, have fun more, and that we fight sin more. For your glory and for our joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.